G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, the only national program focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in Melbourne for 3CR on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Stick Together is broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Radio Foundation. The economic system that prioritises the few over the many, privatisation of public resources, small government and paradoxically private gain and public debt, has been trolling this landscape on steroids for over 40 years, being called lots of names for some of the most ardent backers, Reaganism or Thatcherism. For the young in the audience, these are mythical names, as if from Lord of the Rings, but the result of the neoliberal order has brought with it a climate emergency, a new type of empire where the economic south slaves for the economic north, while in the king countries like the US, the UK, Europe and their little brother Australia, precarious work is the norm, housing is an issue and public services are up for grabs. It could be said in a moment of clarity, standing on the edge of this cliff, that this is a time for a new direction that reduces the priorities of greed for the priorities of solidarity and stewardship, not a time to avert our eyes and hope that everything will be all right. I spent time in November listening to the COP26 alternative conference because one of the things about living in a city-state of one of the satellite countries of the New World Order is that I have a computer and internet connection and time to tune in. It is possible to pretend that my life experiences mirrors other people's, but of course that is human frailty. But the fact that I could make connection to the stories of others on the other side of the world was revelatory, because their stories are the voices of our neighbours with warnings for all. I followed the conversations about public transport and the workers who keep those systems going. I learned about the pivotal nature of public transport for the lives of the city populations, for example, and gleaned the most extraordinary detail about the London Transport Network. The, the government in England expects the London transport system to operate on minimal government support and through the sale of tickets alone. Let that sink in. The government in England expects the London transport system to operate on minimal government support and through the sales of tickets alone. Right there we have an example of the encroachment of private greed endangering the functioning of one of the biggest and most iconic of Western cities dressed up as normal. Given the ongoing dispute for wages and conditions, particularly on centre stage in Sydney with the RBTU taking a range of industrial action to gain the attention of the government and the public, I wanted to know what it is like to work in a system that could be run by such short-sighted government policies. Here is my extended conversation with Daniel Randall, who kindly took time to give me some idea of the issues facing London transport workers. My name's Daniel Randall. I work as a customer service assistant, which is um, station staff, basically, on London Underground. I heard that the uh, London uh, railway service is actually dependent on ticket sales, which seems extraordinary to me. Yeah, that's true. So just to give a bit of kind of background and context on that, um, historically, um, Transport for London, which is the sort of metropolitan transport provider, 
in London. Um, I work for London Underground, which is a subsidiary of Transport for London. Um, historically, Transport for London was funded by central government, uh, by, by an annual grant. But in 2015, the Tory government announced that they were going to run that down to, to nothing, basically. And in, and in 2018, that grant was abolished. So TFL, Transport for London, is now the only metropolitan transport provider of its type in the world not to receive any central government subsidy. Uh, so it's pretty much wholly reliant on fair revenue for its income. And just to give some sense of comparison, the New York subway and the Paris metro, fair revenue makes up between 30 and 40% of their um, income stream. For us in London, um, on the underground, it's 75%. So heavily, heavily reliant on fair revenue. And this means that last year during the pandemic, when people, you know, necessarily and, and rightly and appropriately stopped using public transport, TfL's funding just collapsed and it was plunged into um, financial crisis. The Tory government kind of bailed it out, a few financial bailouts during the last year, but that money came with a lot of strings. Um, the government insisted that TfL conduct a number of wide ranging reviews into everything basically you know staffing levels that the, the whole shebang one of the key ones is a review into the staff pension scheme so all of that's kind of ongoing at the minute and the basic dynamic essentially is that we as frontline workers face the prospect of essentially having to pay via cuts to our terms and conditions or to our pension arrangements for that financial crisis which was you know it was kind of immediately precipitated by the pandemic but it was massively exacerbated by the funding model that TfL had been forced onto prior to the pandemic by the Tories. That's very much at the kind of forefront of our minds at the moment. My union, which is the RMT, that's the National Union of Rail, Maritime and Transport Workers. There are a few unions that organise on London Underground, but we're the majority union across the job. We're also the only one that's kind of all grades industrial union. We are preparing to ballot our membership across London Underground for industrial action to resist um, cuts to, to terms and conditions and, and particularly to pensions. There are a whole raft of other um, issues facing uh, London Underground workers. So, for example, from next Friday, driver members of my union are going to be taking strike action in a dispute around kind of work-life balance and shift patterns. And then outsourced cleaning workers, they're a significant part of the workforce. They've got a whole set of struggles that they face you know, they're pretty systematically discriminated against, have much worse terms and conditions than directly employed staff. And that's a workforce that is predominantly uh, black and uh, minority ethnic and migrant and, and also has a higher proportion of women than the, than the directly employed workforce. So that there's a kind of element of indirect discrimination there as well. So are you talking about the uh, outsourced workers? Are they, are they labour hire? Where it works is that London Underground and TfL so they outsource cleaning, they outsource like security and facilities management in office buildings. They outsource like catering in bath canteens. All, all of these jobs were as recently as probably 25, 30 years ago would have been in-house direct employees. Um, they're all outsourced. There is some agency labor, but the vast majority of them are they're employed directly by the outsource contractor. So cleaning, for example, TfL outsources to a company called ABM. It's an American firm and the cleaners are employed by ABM. So they're not on zero hours contracts or anything. They're on fixed hours contracts with kind of fixed terms and conditions, but they're employed by ABM rather than by London Underground, which means that 
for example, just to give you one of the kind of, in my view, worst uh, disparities between the conditions, um, all members of the, the directly employed workforce, people like me, we get a staff travel pass, which means we get free travel on all TFL um, travel facilities, you know, in work, outside of work, to and from work. It's a travel pass we can use anytime. And we also get an additional pass or the nominee pass, which we can give to, it has to be somebody who shares your address. It doesn't have to be a relative. It could be your partner, your flatmate, a friend who you live with, anyone. So we get two staff travel passes effectively. Outsource cleaning workers who are as much part of the permanent core workforce of the underground, you know, there are, the station relies on their labor to run just as much as it relies on mine. They do not get a travel pass. So they have to pay to travel on the system that their labor helps to run. And they have very low pay. So that is a really... They're much uh, lower paid. They're much yeah. lower paid, yeah. This is a, a, a deeply uh, important element to this. Let's go back to the uh, industrial action that the uh, train drivers are um, sure. initiating. Um, I don't know if it's a, an issue for your train drivers, but in Sydney in particular, they've got a, um, a love affair going on. Uh, the government's got a love affair going on around automated uh, trains without right. train, train drivers, which has been strenuously um, uh pushed back on by the RBTU here. Um, what's the the uh, industrial action around and what's how's it going to roll out? Okay, so well, that's, that's interesting, uh, the point you make about automated trains. That's a, um, that, that's a kind of a, a, a theme in, um, in uh, class conflict on, uh, on London Underground as well, which I'll come back to in a second, but this industrial action that I mentioned previously, it's, um, it's a dispute basically about work-life balance. Is it about uh, the rosters? It's about rosters, but it's, it's specifically about what's called the night tube here. So about five years ago, um, London Underground launched a new service um, that would run on Friday and Saturday nights, would run throughout the night. So ordinarily, like Monday to Thursday on Sunday, trains finish around like between midnight and half past midnight. Um, and the night tube was launched with much fanfare um, on Friday and Saturday night on a certain number of lines. Trains would run through the night. Um, and when the um, proposal was first um, made uh, or, or first announced, the company's plan was that the existing staff would, we would just work the night shifts, both station staff and drivers. So a whole bunch of people who never signed up to work nights basically were told, OK, you're now going to be working these night shifts. We had a big dispute over that. There were a number of strikes and we won a kind of partial victory, which was that the company agreed to basically recruit a new work, recruit a kind of separate workforce of people who were kind of dedicated night tube workers, both train drivers and station staff who would work the night tube. So that was the kind of outcome of that. It wasn't a perfect arrangement. There were some problems with it, but it did mean that nobody who didn't work nights previously was being kind of forced to. The company has now announced that they, for drivers on the train side, they're getting rid of that system. They're abolishing the role of night tube driver and they're integrating the night tube shifts into the full-time driver's rosters. So a whole bunch of people who previously had gone on strike to oppose forcibly having to work night shifts are now being told, 
okay, now you've got to work them. So that's what the dispute's about in, in effect. It's a dispute to defend those part-time driver jobs. It's a dispute to um, resist the forcible imposition of night shifts on full-time drivers. We, we already, all of us in station staff, drivers, you know, many, many operational roles in London Underground are based on very fatigue-inducing shift patterns. You know, and there's a lot of um, a, a mounting body of scientific evidence that shows that the kind of shift working we do, starting very early in the morning, finishing very late at night, rapid rotation between different types of shift has a very detrimental impact on health. And it, in fact, it shortens life. Right. We're already working on that basis and forcing people to work a load of extra night shifts. It would also mean they'd have to work a lot more late shift, early shift to build in the rotation. That's going to make all that worse. So that's what the strike's yeah. about. Uh, so our drivers are, are, are hoping to kind of push that back. I will just say a word about like automation as because you mentioned it. Um, so it has long been a, a kind of a dream and an ideological um, kind of totem for the Tories and a, a kind of a section of London Underground management. Although I think to be fair to them, they have a slightly more realistic view on this, but certainly for the, um, the Tory government and um, Tory members of the London Assembly, which is the kind of municipal government, are obsessed with the idea of moving towards driverless trains on London Underground. But it is, in a very, very naked and explicit way, wholly an ideological totem. There's no safety case for it. There's no evidence whatsoever that having uh, a driverless train makes the service safer. There's no evidence really that it makes the service any more efficient. It is very explicitly about breaking the back of one of the best organized groups of workers. You know, it's, an, it's, it's very explicitly an, an attack on organized labor and posed in those terms. I mean, when the Tory advocates of it talk about it, they are entirely explicit about this. They say, we have to stop these um, unions from holding London to ransom. And we can do that by automating the train service and taking off the front of the train. Now, in reality, the degree of like technical refurbishment and engineering upgrades that would be necessary to move London Underground to driverless trains would cost so much money. I mean, just from a sheer financial point of view, it's, it's actually not worth it to do it, even on its own terms. And London Underground managers actually know that. So um, the push very much is a political one it's an ideological one it's one basically that comes from the tory party now we're in a slightly more vulnerable position now because of the you know the, the whole context that i mentioned with the government bailouts and all the strings that were attached to that money there's now a um, senior civil servant who sits on the tfl board the tory government is in a stronger position than previously to try and impose that uh, kind of ideological artifact um, so they have been talking about it and it was it, you know, when they produced these audit documents, of all the things that they were insisting TfL had to look at the implementation of as a condition of getting the money, driverless trains was in there. So it's definitely like in the ether. I think the kind of technical obstacles to it are significant. So I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, which hopefully will you know, give us some time to um, marshal our forces to resist it. It's quite fascinating to me that uh, the Australian governments are in lockstep with the same ideological push that's going on uh, in your area. Yeah, it's quite extraordinary. Uh, it's like they go to tea together or something. Um, <laughs> they probably do. They probably do. 
You're on Stick Together, workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. We are talking to Daniel Randall, who works for the London Underground, about issues that affect his workplace, which show some uncanny similarities to issues affecting workers in Australia. In Australia, it's often said that uh, since we've had about 13 years of... um, a Liberal National Party government that has been completely focused on anti-union legislation, Yeah, uh, that we have possibly the most draconian arrangements in the industrial relations area in the OECD. Do you have anti-union legislation uh, similar to ours? Yeah, boy, do, do we ever. Um I think Britain could probably give Australia a run for its money on um, draconian anti-union legislation. So prior to the election of the Thatcher government in 79, workers were able to uh, strike on the basis of votes and ballots held in the workplace. So workers could get together at work, have a, disc- have a meeting, have a discussion, show of hands. Do we want to take a strike? Yes. Out the door. Right. Workers were able to strike in solidarity with other workers. So there was a tradition in Britain, for example, of um, miners, dockers, car workers, postal workers, print workers going on strike in support of health workers, in support of nurses, demands for higher pay. Workers could strike over issues of their own choosing. There wasn't a kind of very restrictive legislative framework governing what issues you're allowed to strike over. Following the, the election of the Thatcher government, all of that was um, shackled. So now unions are only allowed to strike over what's called a, a legitimate trade dispute. Yeah, paying conditions. Yeah, exactly. So um, you can strike over paying conditions. You can strike over a health and safety issue. But if, for example, you work in public service, which is being privatised, you can strike over changes to your conditions that might result as a result of that. But you can't strike in opposition to the policy of privatisation. You can't strike, for example, to demand that, and this is very uh, pertinent given COP, you couldn't strike to demand the government take radical action over climate change. Workers couldn't strike to demand the expansion of renewable energy or to demand the expansion of public transport. That's all, quote, political, unquote, not allowed. To hold a strike, unions have to clear a number of hurdles which involve notifying the employer significantly in advance of who you're going to ballot that which gives the employer an opportunity to scrutinize what you've told them pick holes in it find some little technicality that you've missed take you to court get an injunction against your ballot you have to start again if you get over that hurdle and bear in mind the employer has got advance notice of all of this so they've got time to plan to minimize the impact of any strike then you have to conduct the ballot ballot can't be conducted in the workplace it has to be conducted postally by individual ballot to every member's house, which means, first of all, you know, things can get lost in the post. If you're balloting a workforce that has precarious housing situation, very easy for it to be missed. People have to vote on their own individually in an atomized way, away from the kind of collective discussion and deliberation and solidarity of the workplace. There's a turnout threshold. So at least 50% of everyone you balloted has to return their ballot paper, firstly. And then in so-called essential services, which transport is one, there's a double threshold. So 40% of everyone balloted has to vote yes. So you need 50% turnout and minimum 40% yes vote in order to have the strike. If you clear all of that, you then have to give the employer two weeks notice 
of what action you're going to take. And the very, very conscious intent of all of this is to uh, minimise the impact of strikes, to reduce the act of striking, to render it a kind of passive protest, effectively, rather than a leveraging of workers' power over production. It's kind of reduced to a sort of mere act of protest. And on top of all of this, the government now has policy to bring forward new legislation for transport workers specifically to stipulate a legally mandated minimum service during transport workers' strikes. So this would mean whatever the level is set at, let's say it's set at 20%, this would mean there'd be a legal uh, mandate for at least 20% of transport services to run when transport workers are on strike. And in other countries where such laws exist, normally the way they work is that the union will designate a certain percentage of its membership as exempt from having to strike. So not only is the strike rendered less effective, the union is forced to manage scabbing, to uh, sabotage the impact of its own action. So actually what we're talking about is a recreation of the master-servant relationship and you should know your place and that the boss financial class are the controllers of the universe yeah absolutely and I think you know sometimes it can seem a bit hyperbolic to pose things in those terms but I don't think it is I think it's absolutely correct and what this legislative regime has the effect of doing is of imposing or, or reinforcing the dictatorship of the boss the dictatorship of capital and what it effectively means is that democracy you know to the extent even to the relatively limited extent that it exists in at all stops at the door of the workplace you're on stick together workers stories union news and social justice issues we are listening to a chat I had with Daniel Randall, union member and transport worker on the public transport system in London. I'm sure you know um, national rail travel in uh, Britain is privatised, although the Tories have kind of reformed the mechanism of privatisation. So they've kind of changed the franchising system a bit. They have no intention and indeed a profound ideological opposition to bringing Uh, rail transport back into proper public ownership which to me is a necessary step towards uh, maximizing its potential as a instrument in the fight against climate change any government that is as deeply committed to the logic of the market and to the profit motive as ours is social and ecological need is always going to come second that's the reality and where the Tories are looking to expand public transport because there are some big transport engineering projects that are ongoing at the minute so um, Crossrail is one of them which is a a big like east to west railway that runs across London and HS2 is another one which is a high-speed railway connecting London to some cities in the north that's very much about serving the needs of business Crossrail for example one of the kind of big uh, selling points of it as far as the Tories are concerned is it, it will get you from Heathrow airport to Canary Wharf, which is the main financial centre of London, in 20 minutes. That's the kind of public transport they want to expand, which is about serving the finance sector, um, serving the interests of capital and business. They're uninterested, really, in uh, public transport as a, or or at least far less interested in in public transport as a kind of general social good, and certainly uh, less interested in it as a uh, mechanism for fighting climate change. 
I think we as workers also need to be putting forward demands and developing plans for the kind of transition and decarbonisation of, of our industry, just as you know, all workers in any industry need to do that, really. If we go back to those uh, big projects, public transport projects uh, focused on business, is the government uh, giving money to those projects? Yeah, so they're big, um, they're really big flagship kind of prestige projects. You know, they won't be allowed to fail. I mean, Crossrail, the one, the kind of east to west railway in London, is years behind schedule. It was meant to open in 2018, I think. So a money and soak. Yeah, completely. It's way behind schedule. So last year, during the pandemic, the government bailed out TfL with a load of money. And the strings attached to those bailouts were that TfL had to conduct all these audits of its spending and, you know, basically look to make cuts. It was very clear that Crossrail funding was ring-fenced. You know, that wasn't going to be touched. I'm not saying that its funding should be withdrawn. As much as it will be beneficial to business, it is an additional public transport facility within London, it will have other benefits. And of course, it's going to create unionised jobs, relatively secure, stable jobs in the public transport sector. So it's not that I want the project to fail, but um, it is a pretty clear example of how the government's transport priorities are very much about... Public money to private enterprise. Yeah, indeed. And and to kind of serve the needs of business. And the other thing about Crossrail, which is important to note, is that... um, there are kind of two sections of it which are open and running. The branches that are operating at the minute, they're being operated directly by TfL. At the minute, it's in kind of public hands. But as soon as it's finished and completed and can really start like generating revenue, then it's going to be handed to a private consortium. And that's also in line with existing transport policy. So the, the Docklands Light Railway, which is a railway system that serves parts of East London and South East London, although it's operated under the TfL Aegis, the actual operation of the system is farmed out to the private sector. Corporate welfare, one would call it. Yeah, 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 almost. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you see it right the way across transport policy in this country. So the bus network in London and Transport for London has oversight, but the actual operation of it is farmed out to private bus companies. Often TfL will subsidise if the if those you know private bus companies are, basically aren't making enough money. TfL will subsidise them. So, public transport is essential for a effectively run modern city. Yeah, completely. And it's you know thinking about this from a kind of let's say class politics or a kind of socialist point of view, effective accessible, affordable public transport, the labour movement needs to see that in the same way that we see education, healthcare, housing, kind of basic sort of social entitlements, you know, things that should not be subject to the logic of the market, things that should not be run for profit, things that should not be run on the basis of the kind of exigencies of business, things that we as working class people should feel entitled to. And importantly, not just to get us from home to work and back again. When people talk about an efficient public transport system, often that's what they mean. We shouldn't see it like that. We should see it as about something which enables us to have a good quality of life so we can go and see our friends or go to the countryside or to the beach or whatever it might be. An efficient, effective, accessible public transport system is necessary from that point of view. And the profit motive and the logic of the market can, will never deliver that.